You're listening to Bedroom Beethoven's, where notable music makers break down stories accompanied by songs and melodies documenting growth through their 10,000-hour journey. And me? Well, my name is Cello, your host. It's the Bedroom Beethoven Podcast. Whoa, you just blew my mind because nobody talks about that shit. <laughs> Thank you for this. Like, I was looking forward to this chat, man. I love your interviews. I thank you for what you're doing. Like, it's excellent. And um, people can continue to learn the stories of, the, of these uh, bedroom Beethoven's. Um, how did you find out about this? Are you? Oh, my God. Having something like this to shed light on, on, on us is amazing. Like, we really need this documentation. So people like you are definitely needed. Hey, everybody. My guest this week. Well, my name is Kelly Finnegan. I'm from Los Angeles, California. I sing and play and produce and write with a band called Monophonics, which is out of the Bay Area. I do some solo stuff as well. I've worked with tons of different people from Oregon to Ben Longley Soul to Black Alicious and different acts uh, from around, you know, different parts of the country and even some uh, out of the country. Coming off tour, music featured in a huge Hollywood film, the revisiting of the tales people tell. A year later, while also celebrating the Monophonics release last month, the band has drawn on their colorful history, and we chat about both Kelly's experiences as veteran touring performer and as an individual growing up in California. To produce, it's only us. The Monophonics' fourth release since 2012. Oh, and all my record store fans out there, I know the extra wait until June is painful, but getting a crack at the limited edition instrumental album of Kelly's debut is worth the wait. But first, let's get down to brass tacks, because I do need your support to keep this show chugging along. Like, comment, and subscribe anywhere that you download podcasts. Visit the website, bedroombeethovens.com. Visit the YouTube channel, the Instagram. So many avenues for you to support the show, but in this time of uncertainty and crisis, if you feel so inclined, patreon.com slash bedroombeethovens is the hub where you can donate a few bucks to make sure the show stays running and to make sure the show stays ad-free. I really appreciate everything. I'm honored and as motivated as ever to create another musician's tale. Kelly Finnegan, Bedroom Beethoven's episode number 63. Let's start. Yeah, it's a it's a special time to be sitting down with you because the Monophonics albums just dropped that you produced, and it's been a year since your debut album dropped. So you get to promote, but then you also get to talk about your debut as it's marinated for a little bit. So I was yeah, I was hoping to get that interesting parallel of perspectives as we have this conversation. And you were, of course. I mean, being able to be in a situation to put out 
basically something that I consider, you know, it's it's monophonics record, but I'm I'm all over it, so it feels like my record as well. So to be able to put two records out in 11 months, I feel very good about that and the work speaks speaks for itself, but um at one point yeah, I was working on both these records at the same time and it was pretty crazy and uh they're different records, but they share, you know, some similarities. And Yeah, and trust me, I, I mean, it, I wish there was a better way to open this conversation with a better topic, any topic, but I have an opportunity to kind of get a firsthand account of how this COVID-19 is affecting musicians. When we first talked, you told me that your phone was ringing off the hook, like people calling you nonstop. Are these, like, friends and families checking in on you, or are these, like, agents and publicists trying to figure out the next move? Uh, it's both. It's friends, it's families, it's other musicians. People from other countries, because I've made a lot of friends over the years touring over there, a lot of people saw my calendar was going to be clearing up. So it kind of turned into, oh, you're around now. So, you know, maybe we can get back in the studio. (laughs) Well, I mean, fortune favors the bold, my friend, because as things are getting canceled, you were able to successfully wrap up a tour that brought your music to plenty of patrons and fans all over the country. So, I, I don't know. Great timing. And I don't know if that's something I congratulate yeah, I you on. <laughs> no, I feel lucky, man. Honestly, I, I think I got out of there at the perfect time. Um, I'm feeling for a lot of people who, you know, went on vacations or took business trips. And then all of a sudden during that trip, realized that coming home was going to be not an easy task. I'm I'm lucky that I got home about a week before things started really getting hairy at airports and um, in terms of international travel. So it was a beautiful trip. It was a great tour. Met a lot of beautiful people. Um, people came to the shows like really ready to engage themselves in the music. A lot of people knew these songs, knew the record. That's always very humbling um, when you're that far away from home because sometimes there's certain markets you go into and you know, like I have fans, like I can see it between the record sales and the streams and all that stuff, the downloads. But sometimes you just never know when you go into smaller towns or new places that seem you know, out of where you kind of put your music in that that world. But there was always people, good amount of people. They were excited. They were happy. And and like I said, people knew the words. They knew the songs. And that's that's really a special feeling that some artists know, and they can definitely agree with me that there's something really uh, exciting and just – it's an amazing feeling to create something so far away from someone, and then you can see – how much that that song or the music means to them and being able to experience it with you in front of them doing it live. And that's, that's, I think that's why I like performing the most. Like there's a lot of great things about touring and, and playing shows and performing, but I think the connection and the, what I call instant gratification for the fan and the artist musician that's what makes it the most special is that we can share in that. Even with the the Sonic movie, because films like A Quiet Place 2 and Mulan and Fast and the Furious 9, they're all getting delayed, some with no tentative release date. They're in limbo. And the, this movie just crossed the $300 million mark. Yeah, man. I, it's, you're right. <laughs> it's another blessing timing. Um, you know, I'm, I'm definitely it's things like that that are important to focus on. Rather than the fact that, you know, we've had to postpone Monophonics Tour, which like like I just said, we both said that the record just came out. That's an important thing for any band as a, as a tool to promote yourself and really bring the music to people live, as I spoke of. And unfortunately, that's, that's on the negative side. You know, things are going to get postponed until at least probably, you know, late May, early June. Hopefully, if everything stays on course with people, you know, s- staying at home, 
staying healthy, doing, doing what we're all being told to do just to be safe. Musicians joke that people, the first thing you see when you post a tour is everybody who complains where you're not going. Really where you should be taking that complaint is to your local promoter or your local club because a musician will go anywhere if you can kind of like make sure him and the band are going to eat and it makes sense financially. We'll go. And some of those younger bands will go anywhere for nothing. Just, I know I'm kind of touching on a lot of things, but if you ever feel like a band's not coming there, like make sure you go to your local music club and talk to the promoter, talk to the people who produce the shows and put it in their ear that if they bring this band, you know, people are going to come and it's going to be successful. It's not really up to the band all the time, um, unfortunately, because like I said, we'll definitely go anywhere if you ask us and it makes sense. I mean, I, I did my part because I called my local record store to make sure that your instrumental vinyl was going to be there for record store day. And now, oh man, thank you so much. That, I mean, there's only I mean. what? There's only 1,200, so I got to make sure that my store is going to get it. Definitely, and and it's not like Terry, a coal mine, and those guys, Terry and Bob. It's not like they don't want to stock it in as many stores as possible because it's the same idea. It's like we do this because we want to share it with as many people. We want to bring as much music and joy and and just everything the music does to us. We want to we want to spread it as wide as possible. That's not a, a good thing to say right now, using the word spread, <laughs> but I mean it in such yeah. a beautiful, like a, a positive connotation because you know that's what we're doing right now by people like i said going back to it like just dealing with this and supporting each other through it that's we're spreading love and we're spreading hope you know cali's being affected I, I think you were you were born and raised in los angeles correct i was born and raised in los angeles in the valley studio city i'm a child of that city and it's funny when you're from la people kind of have this thing and they want to and you're just like it's home like it's home you know what i mean it's it's like where you grew up of course it's los angeles it's a big city. People think of Hollywood and the music industry, the entertainment industry, but it's like, it's just, it's the same like anything else. Like you have memories and you watch communities change and some places stay the same forever. And that, that market, that deli, that corner store, whatever it is, like it's still there today. And that's a beautiful thing. But obviously from where I'm from, it, you know, it's completely different, but it'll always just be home. Six years prior to you being born in, in 1975, your father thought it would be advantageous for his career to put down roots in L.A., and he was right because he ended up recording with Crosby, Stills, and Nash, and Etta James, and Bonnie Raitt, and don't even get me started on working with Jimi Hendrix. So do you do you have any stories, like, you know, when you're a kid, maybe you woke up in the morning to get a bowl of cereal, and there's Carlos Santana or Earl Palmer in your kitchen or something? <laughs> You know, it's funny you said Earl Palmer because actually um, Earl Palmer left a message on our answering machine one time. And, you know, when, when you when you reach a certain age, we all know, like, you figure out how to reach, you know, you, you start to get messages from your friends or girls. And you kind of, it's one of those adult things, like getting the mail and opening it up. Uh, it's just one of those things when you get younger. And I think I was a young teenager and I just started figuring out session musicians and connecting names on records with people and just whatnot. And, uh, he called and I was like, what, why, why is Earl? I mean, I knew at that point what my dad did and who he was, but it's always surprising because my dad played in Maria Moldar's band. And I think it was 73 or 74 and Earl Palmer was the drummer. So they became fast friends, and my dad, you know, he owned those Fats Domino's records, those little Richard records that Earl started playing on in New Orleans, and that's what brought him out to L.A., and 
He ended up in the Wrecking Crew. I encourage, he's my favorite drummer. So I encourage anybody who plays the drums or just loves music to look up Earl Palmer because he's an absolute legend and one of the greatest to ever play the instrument. So things like that did happen, and it was trippy having dinner with Joe Walsh, uh, being around people like Etta James and growing up literally around Crosby, Stills, and Nash and their organization. And, uh, man, I got to meet a lot of, you know, amazing people. But also being in L.A., that's just, you know, there's a lot of entertainers and musicians who live in L.A. and lived in the Valley at that point. I went to school with Bobby Womack Jr., so I saw Bobby Womack all the time, or Bobcat Goldthwaite's um, son went there. So it was like, you just, it just was a part of it. And it's trippy now as you get older and, and you think about it, but it's just like, at that point, you're just a kid, and it's like, that's your classmate. And man, I, I mean, I knew who Bobby Womack was, but now if I would have seen him, I'd be like, I'd freak out. <laughs> Well, I, I have a Mike Finnegan story that you may or may not know. Can I take a crack at it? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right. So back when he was starting out playing nightclubs in Ohio, he was scheduled to play for a few nights. And then, you know, as touring goes, move on to the next location. But I guess he was so good that the mob forced him to play a nightclub for two weeks straight and being forcibly held over by a mobbed up joint, you know, guys that were part of the Broken Nose Club. He was a young guy and these were legitimately gangster so he had to play there for two weeks straight definitely sounds true and any older musician who did that circuit in the 50s and 60s and 70s could definitely tell you that and it's come through in hollywood which is like there's a lot of side businesses and hustling and nightclubs and selling alcohol and bringing teenagers into dance at that point in the mid 60s was like there was there was the money was starting to really come in in terms of nightclubs and live music at this point. So, of course, you would expect those kind of people. I don't mean to sound like that. Those kind of people who <laughs> go do that activity, uh, you know, that that think a lot about the side hustle, the side business. Uh, yeah, I've definitely heard my, my dad talk about it. I've heard other musicians in interviews talk about having to bring money. I mean, bring a gun in when they're when they're sitting down with the boss man to to get paid at the end of the night and how oh wow yeah some of those uh my dad's always called some of those places upholstered sewers back then especially my dad being in a mixed band in the mid-60s traveling around the midwest and the south you know with white and black guys in the band they definitely experienced some some troubling things that have checkered our past as a country but uh i know that was a big part of you know, being a musician in the sixties and, and under, excuse me, understanding how important music was in terms of trying to keep people separated when really I think music was the best way to understand that. Like in reality, we all, we do actually all belong together. And musically speaking, your dad's a big deal, but visibly, I think your mom is probably more recognizable figure. I've seen her on TV for decades. Uh, <laughs> she would love that man. All those years, you know, my dad getting the attention he deserves, you know, from my mom to all of a sudden, you know, later down the line as an older adult to start to uh, be on television and, uh, yes, being recognized in public places and and really people just coming up to her and, and saying really nice things and just thanking her. And, and, and she loves that. And it's anybody. Listen. Listen, if you're doubting it, you don't realize a complete stranger coming up to you and knowing who you are because of what you do is like, that's, that's a big thing to feel as a human. Like, I wish everybody could feel it because it, it really feels like what you're doing is important because it's just affected that person enough for them to want to walk over to you 
and pay respects. So she loves it. And I love being around when that happens because I know how happy it makes her because the work she's doing for the pe- people don't know, you know, she's helping people get their life together. She's, she's ultimately helping them save themselves from, you know, uh, drug abuse, alcohol abuse, and just a lifestyle that, that puts them in danger. I mean, she's been sober pretty much your entire life, but I imagine your, your dad and her, they've been married for 50 years and that places her and him being in that rock star life in the seventies. Cause your mom's main point is she was an addict herself, but she's been sober for over three and a half decades and she's kind of paying it forward and doing great work. But you know, you know, we don't have to get into the weeds on the vices of your parents when they were younger, but you know, Hendrix and Janis Joplin and Jim Morrison, you know, they died from, from that stuff. And it seems like, you know, your dad was in those environments. Your mom was with them during those times. They probably, I could probably listen to an entire podcast of just the crazy stories they had. Oh, of course. There's some hilarious things, <laughs> hilarious stories and people doing outrageous stuff while partying or being high or whatever. You know, I'll say the one thing my dad has told me multiple times, and I know he said in interviews, is like, the Hendrix thing was like really mellow. Um, Not to say that obviously we know how that record was made, and there were a lot of people coming in late at night and after jams. And You know, Hendrix was usually starting that record. My dad's band, The Surfs, people should check them out, S-E-R-F-S, they're on Capitol. Uh, and they put out a, a 45 before that on a small Midwest label called Rhythm and Soul. But um, they were recording at the record plant, which was brand new in New York City in 68, the summer of 68. My dad's band was recording from around 11 noon to midnight. And Jimmy would come in and record Electric Ladyland from 11 p.m., 12 a.m. to the early afternoon. So, you know, that tells you the environment. It's late, but some people like to create. And uh, But my dad has always said that, like, it was mellow. Maybe there was, like, some people smoking some, some herb or having a couple drinks or something. But it wasn't some, like, crazy party with people, you know, really doing heavy drugs and focused on the, the fun instead of really the music. But, yeah, I, I think I think – Luckily for my dad in the 60s, he was so ultra-focused on the music and succeeding that I think he definitely liked to have a good time. But I don't think he, till he got professional in a big way, like you said, working with with really bigger bands and landing some really good gigs as a musician at that point, big acts. And I think once he started feeling like, okay, I've reached a, a plateau, maybe I can relax a little bit. Um, like I said, I think he liked to have a good time, but I think he got wrapped up in it once there was a level of comfort and that urgency of survival was gone. You know what I mean? Because any musician or artist will tell you of any type of art, there's an urgency. If you really want to make it, you know, you're going to feel this urgency to get up and do this every day because that's how you survive. Yeah. So, I mean, you're you're obviously a, a chip off the old block, but your sister, she kind of went her own path. My sister went her own path, which is good. We don't need, <laughs> we don't need more musicians. Uh, two is enough for one room. <laughs> I mean, no black sheep in your family, no estranged brothers living in the basement, smoking weed and wasting their lives away. You're all very ambitious. The Finnegan's are a very driven, accomplished family. Oh, definitely. And I think that's when you grow up around, you know, driven people, 
people who get up, like I said, every day with a purpose to want to make the world a better place by bettering themselves first through like music or helping other people or, you know, there's, we could sit here all day and talk about the good things we can do as humans. But yeah, growing up around my parents who have been so committed to each other and so committed to the work they do and, and so committed to us as their kids, they, you, I couldn't ask for two better people or parents in terms of they've always supported what I've wanted to do. They've supported my, my decisions, even when some of them were crazy. I mean, if they wouldn't have been so supportive right off the bat about me wanting to get into DJing when I was going on 13, going on 14 that summer, then, uh, I don't know where I'd be. Well, now the, the two things you're not supposed to talk about are politics and religion, but we're going to talk about it, my friend, if you don't mind. <laughs> okay, that's fine. You have songs like Freedom, and there are some songs that resemble or or are gospel, even if it's inspired by. Now, your dad's a liberal. You're not particularly political, nor are you particularly religious. So you let the music speak for you. And this this can be dangerous because if the listener – misconstrues or takes the meaning the wrong way, they can walk away with a different version of what you intended. Yeah, that's a good, there's, that's, there's good points in that. And I think, you know, what I've always done is I just do things that I like, man, you know, and because I think that's the most important thing is like, I make records that I like and I make records that I'd want to listen to or records that I would intrigue me as a listener or inspire me. And that's what I go for first. And it all just kind of happens I don't necessarily say, you know, a song like Freedom, that that started off, me and Terry started that in Ohio, and that went to a whole nother place, because that's just how it ended up. Any song that has a tinge of gospel, it's usually not set out, and I don't say, I'm going to make a gospel song. I love gospel music. There's so much under the surface when people think of gospel music, it's like you could, it's a really deep well of different sub genres of gospel. You know, at one point people were just like gospel artists were like ripping off top 40 records in terms of, you know, more soul R and B records in the late sixties and and early seventies. And basically just replacing the word love or anything else with, with God or, or him or, you know, religion, you know, religious based things, faith. So, I love the music. Like I said, I, I do what I like, man. I, I do what moves me and I just don't get too caught up in if someone listens to a song and thinks this guy's religious. So, so be it. I'm not, I don't care. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I like that, that train of thought because like you released impeach the president, because I think releasing a song like that, you're automatically going to lose, I don't know, 2% of your fan base, but you might gain 2% of new listeners and we all live differently. And you have your convictions. I, I'll i never have the power to change people's feelings or the way they, they, you know, perceive me or my music or the message. It's like, you know, I am who I am as an artist. I have a voice. And when I want to use my voice to get out something that, that's on my chest, I'm allowed to do that, you know, and you're allowed to not like it. And we can just respect each other in terms of that. I'm going to do what I'm going to do and you're going to do what you're going to do. And, and that's the beauty of freedom. And, and even though I think there's a lot of BS in this country, you know, there is a a certain extent of freedom and I'm allowed to put out a record talking about the things I want and you're allowed to not buy it or not listen to it. And you know, the guys from Surefire Soul Ensemble out of San Diego, they had cut the rhythm track 
And Terry had heard it at coal mine and suggested that that I could be the right guy to do it. And we had worked um, before on something else. They did a cover of Message to the Meters, or I'm sorry, excuse me, Message from the Meters, and and I sang on it, and it went really well. And I love Tim Felton, who's the leader of that group, and uh, they're all great musicians and great people. So happy to collaborate when it makes sense. So yeah, man, I mean... Like I said, it's like I did the song. I really enjoyed it. It felt good to sing those words. You know, I'm not happy with this administration. I don't like Donald Trump. And, you know, if you don't like my music because I have that opinion as a human living in this country, then, you know, we might be better off not not being friends or you liking my music because some of the way people think in this country, it drives me crazy. But like I said, I don't. It doesn't mean I'm going to like spend my next hours trolling you on a social media site or, or, you know what I mean? It's like, I don't have time for that. It's like, if you don't like me, hey, good on you. I think a lot of artists think like that. They just don't have the courage to put out the liberation music. So that's, you know, I tip my hat off to you. I mean, look, it happened. My my wish came true. He was not removed, but he was impeached. So you know, call me a uh, call me a bit of a, uh, a psychic. <laughs> Some people say that he's guilty. That he's guilty. Some people say I don't know. I don't know. Some people say. I, I just hope that you guys, you know, maybe you all will get sampled. Because I, I listened to that song the first five seconds. I was like, oh, that's TLC's Waterfalls. And then at the 16-second mark, I'm like, oh, that's Janet Jackson. And then I was like, oh, that's NWA. That's J. Cole. I'm like, geez. Oh, man. It's, yeah, it's, uh, it's a legendary record. I mean, every every good DJ who has, you know, uses records and vinyl still has it in their, in their crate or their bag. I don't know, man. I just... Uh, I just think it's funny when, you know, I see it with comedians and musicians, when people want to have a personal opinion as a human, there becomes this attitude of like, well, you're not supposed to talk about that. You're supposed to like entertain me and not, and I hear see people, right? I come here because I don't want to think about that. And it's like, what are you talking about? Like, I'm a human as well as a musician or an artist or a comedian or a writer or a painter, whatever it is. It's like, I'm, I'm a human first. And having these feelings and wanting to speak out is my it's my God given right, man. And like I say that not as a religious person, but as a th- just like I'm allowed to do this, man. Because whoever created created us and created me and how things became to the way they are in 2020, it's like you're damn right. I'm going to speak up and say what I want because I I would allow you to do the same. Yeah, I mean, we could talk a little bit about that. I mean, your dad grew up in Southern Ohio, which was near Kentucky. He heard country music and rhythm and blues. He was 50 miles from King Records. Your grandparents had Benny Goodman to Louis Jordan and gospel big band records like Art Tatum. And so I like, I never knew that Cleveland was such a hotbed and laid the groundwork for generations of future musicians such as yourself. Oh yeah, man. Oh, definitely. The Midwest was like cracking. Like you said, King Records, Dayton was right there. Guys, a lot of my dad saw tons of, you know, there was a supper club there that that got great jazz musicians. I know he told me in high school he took a girl there on a date, even though her dad told him not to. Uh, and I believe Sonny Rollins was playing and came through the back, 
you know, walking by the tables with, you know, with a mohawk to see, uh, to see that, you know, my dad was pretty damn hip. The more I've talked to him, you know, he was like, like you said, he grew up in a house where there was a lot of music. My grandparents had really good taste in music and they were eclectic and they were, had a piano in their house and my, they sang at their church and, you know, they loved music. So it's, it's no surprise that my dad was exposed to a lot of cool stuff, but then being who he is, you know, went out and wanted to explore his own stuff. And he used to go to the Cincinnati Jazz Fest all the time. That's where he actually met a young Cassius Clay. Oh, wow. Uh, before he, yeah, but when he was just before he became heavyweight champ, I think a year or two before that. And uh, he, I mean, he's seen so many, he's seen so much good music as a teenager um, before he really started focusing on his own, you know, playing his own music. Um, it's pretty amazing. You kind of have to like, get him in to the mindset and he'll start remembering and rattling off all the jazz quartets and quintets and Nina Simone. And I mean, just amazing people. I think the second date he took my mom out on, they went and saw BB King. I mean, you would think like, Oh yeah, well, you know, your, your dad was this. So obviously you're, you're Prince, you sing, you play the vibraphone, keyboards, drums, percussion. But when I, when I dig a little bit, I find out, Oh, well, he didn't sing until he was almost 30, and he self-taught piano, and he had a drum kit, but he was reluctant to play it. So there was a little bit of like tug uh, back and forth, like a tug of war. Yeah, man, I was really attracted to the studio because, like I said, I got into DJing at a young age. Just like what happens where you hear a lot of DJs who, you know, there's a lot of musicians and producers and songwriters out there that became DJs first. And that's because your job as a DJ is to like immerse yourself in the music and really break it down and figure out what tempos work and what keys and what moods and this feel and why this works into that. And like, I really got into that at a young age. And because of that, I started listening to records with this real kind of intense vibe of like, well, why is this like this? And what, what sound is that? And, and, and why, why does this feel good? You know what I mean? Just my brain was like going a mile a minute in terms of like peeling back the layers of these records. And a lot of them were, hip-hop records and r&b records because that's what i was djing and that's what i liked and a lot of that stuff is rooted in it's sample based music at that point which is a lot of it's funk and soul and jazz and you know funky jazz and rock and psychedelic rock and obscure records that was the whole thing was like you buy the you find the coolest most obscure record and turn it into this great beat you know and so i was turned on by that and through that, I went into some studios and I just loved the studio and I loved how I felt when I was in the studio and I was making the decisions and helping put the beat together and helping produce or figure out what the hook should be or arrangement. So that's really, by the time I was like 15 or 16, that was really like my dream was like, oh, I want to produce music. I want to produce hip hop and R&B and I, I didn't play an instrument. I, I owned some, you know, an MPC and had a bunch of records and turntables. And and then once I got, I went away for boarding school. Uh, I went to Vermont. Growing up in LA, I kind of figured out fast that I didn't like school and that it wasn't that hard to not go to school. <laughs> <laughs> like being dropped off and then being like, yeah, see you later. And then just walking away was like not that hard. So my freshman year, I basically failed out of a school and my parents were basically like, listen, you know, you have to go to high school. Sorry. This is just not up for discussion. You're, you're going to high school. So figure out what you want to do. And I went to a public school for the next semester 
And I realized like, oh, this is even like, you can get away with murder. Like before I could just ditch. Now if I, I can basically not ditch and, and do whatever I want. Like these teachers are checked out, man. And now you have bands like the Sentiments who record their soul and funk at Transistor, which you co-own. So look at you taking over the world. I mean, yeah, man. Like, uh, basically <laughs> to get back to it, it was like, I just thought about music. I just wanted to do music, but I, I, my, I had my dad who played keyboards and sang and, and was more in a live aspect. And he did tons of stu- studio and session work, but that's where I really saw him work. You can't bring your kid to the session. So I'd always see him in a live setting. And, and I just wasn't, I loved live music and I loved that aspect of it, but I wasn't attracted to it. And then just spent the next years in the studio and honing my craft. And then with that, came the urge to like, you know, write or replay samples or learn how to play these records. So that was what made me dive into the keyboard and, um, and just start to like, you know, I would ask my dad questions or get chord books and figure out how to play these songs and, and just started doing the work. Like I said, I was, I was at that point, I was so hungry to just learn and get better every day. And with that, I got interested in recording and how the studio worked and went to school for that for about three months in LA in terms of just, you know, basic chops for audio engineering and how to work the gear. And so, yeah, man, I've just been someone who wanted to learn everything and that I'm really, I'm really happy that I had that, that hunger to, to just gobble up as much knowledge as possible because now I can, I have so many different avenues that I can work. I can, I could be hired to go engineer a record. I can be brought out to help do arranging or write songs. I can, you know, produce this new monophonics record. I, I did my first, you know, uh, string arrangements with a great string player I work with out here in the Bay Area. So yeah, to singing, to you know, doing keyboard work, or it's it, I'm just lucky that at one point I was so willing to sacrifice my teenage years, my later teenage years, and my early twenties to just stay in and woodshed and get better and and learn so but when you're djing you're you're essentially introducing west coast kids to tribe called quest and wu-tang yeah man i mean it was a trip looking back to to know that i was 14 and i was djing these school dances for other middle school kids junior high kids and yes playing you know back then r&b the swvs the montel jordans i had all those 12 inches but then also yeah throwing down some tribe throwing down some woo um wait you're playing this is how we do it at a middle school dance oh yeah bro i just remember how much i loved doing that and how exciting it was to be you know able to rock a party like there was nothing like putting on a, i mean that's why people love djing because if you've experienced that it's like i said it's, it's instant gratification man it's that i do something and you react and it only inspires me to want to to keep the room going so well so how did the the detriments come about during that time right at that time i started Really, once I started figuring out kind of how to maneuver around the keyboards, I just went on a tear of uh, buying keyboards, buying vintage keyboards, Fender Rhodes, Honer Clavinets, Wurlitzer Electric Pianos, uh, Mini Moogs, Micro Moogs, Korg MS-20s, ARP, um, ARP synthesizers, like just all the cool stuff that I was reading on the back of these records. I started buying those and collecting them. 
So then it was just like, with that, I was buying some recording equipment, very cheap stuff. You know, this is when Pro Tools is still pretty new. It hasn't really fully become the, you know, some people were still working with tape at this point. A lot of the bigger bands that had the money. So just started collecting recording stuff and hanging out with Jesse and Sean. It was like jamming. And then it was like, oh, let's record this. And we had this, our friend Aaron, who had a studio that we were hanging out at a lot. And when he wasn't using it, you know, that typical thing of like, oh, when you're not using it, can we use it? Oh, okay, cool. So just kind of happened organically, three friends messing around. And then it really, um, it really just allowed me to, like I said, keep figure basically just figure out how to make records like you're figuring it out as you go like there's no class there's no youtube tutorial you're just like figuring it out and you're experimenting and you're trying things and sometimes you make crap and you, you know you realize that and sometimes you strike gold and you make something really cool not everybody's john and paul and just writes a hit their first time out and that organic process kind of bleeds over into the monophonics because you guys, I guess you like bands like Blue Lotus and Mr. Calypso. And next thing you know, you're at 19th Broadway nightclub. Well, that's the thing, man. It's like, I wasn't around for all that. That's all those, those, the original members, which are Alex, Ryan, Austin, Ian, Miles, those guys, along with a couple other guys is like, that was something they did, and I didn't even know those guys yet. So when you're playing with them for a, like a number of years, how do you decide that you're ready for like a solo? Like, was this a case of like the keyboard player when he moved to New York and he tried being a solo artist and being in the band, or you kind of made a commitment to where you're no. ready to step out on your own? Well, no, man, it was a slow process because like what I'm talking about is like I did Destruments till about 2010, 11, and then in 2010 is when I met Monophonics. And they asked me to sub for their keyboard player. So here's the thing. It's like, at that point, even though Destruments is a group and some people would say a band because we're playing instruments, we weren't like a live band. We didn't play out. Real, I think we placed like some house parties or our friend had a skateboard shop that we would play some parties at sometimes. Like our homie had a sneaker shop in Oakland. We play. It's just like, it was kind of fun little things. And like, at one point we were backing up this MC who was on Hieroglyphics Records who went by the name of Prince Ali, who actually... Oh, yeah, the actor. <laughs> yeah, it's actually Mahershala Hazbaz Ali, uh, Ali, the two-time Oscar winner. <laughs> we were just doing stuff, man. Like, it wasn't... It was never like a band. It felt like a group of friends making records and making music. Sneezing, blessing the poor yardie from the hay fever. Whereas Monophonics was like a band that was playing around the Bay Area and and around Northern California. So I just came in as a sub and and it was like exciting at the time because like I said, I'd never played with like a horn section. And I and you know, as skilled as Jesse and Sean are, it's not like a six piece band. It was like a trio with me on you know, it's like a three piece. So it just felt more like like friends kind of messing around and jamming more than like stepping into monophonics and you're playing all these like rare soul and funk tunes and, and even some Fela Kuti tunes, some Afrobeat and it was just very like intimidating at first. Cause like I said, I I had some skills, but I wasn't I definitely would never call myself a jazz musician or some 
acclaimed soloist or someone who's like got these heavy chops or anything. It's like, I can get by, I can write, I can, I can hold my own on a gig, but I'm no like virtuoso or anything. I really take a simple soulful approach to playing the keyboard. So I was intimidated, man. And like this is 2010. And like I said, what I had over them is like hours of studio time. So that's really what I brought to the table and, and a, and a drive and a work ethic that they were kind of just like, yeah, we're a great band because we're all great musicians and we play these cool soul and funk tunes. And they had the musicianship and the chops in that regard. And I had the attitude of like, well, we're really good. Like, you know what I mean? Once I got more comfortable in the group and and knew I could speak up and I actually felt like I was a member because like I said, I came in as a sub for their old keyboard player. They were just They were just filling the chair until they figured it out. The guys in the band were like kind of over the whole instrumental thing. I think they were ready to like write some songs and have vocals and and take it to the next level. And that's important. Everyone was on the same page. So just started recording, made a 45. That's how I met Terry the first time on Coal Mine. That was almost 10 years ago. We put out a 45 called Like Yesterday. I think that was the ninth or 10th release on Coal Mine at that point. It was very, very new. You know, um, we started working on the record that became In Your Brain and came out in 2012. And we did that in a basement where I was living in the Presidio. For those who don't know, the Presidio is an old part of San Francisco that was like where the military was housed during World War II and whatnot. Um, it's a beautiful part of San Francisco because it actually, it's right near the, the Golden Gate Bridge and the beach, but it actually feels very much like you're not in a city. It feels like you're almost in this little wooded forest area and then you drive five minutes and all of a sudden you're in in the city so it was very inspiring being in the basement and just having that raw hunger about you know what i was bringing to the table but i was brand new at like you said i was brand new at singing like yesterday besides that i had really only sung on like one or two more one or two maybe three songs but it was very much more like background vocal and very whispery and kind of like you know, more dreamy kind of thing. It wasn't like opening up my mouth and really like belting it out. The first time I did that was like yesterday and I was scared shitless, dude. (laughs) The way you bounce between psychedelic music with the monophonics and then your soul. I mean, there's everyone from Claypool, Lennon Delirium, Kikagaku Moyu. Then you have Leon Bridges and Mark Ronson. So it's, it's a wide spectrum and no one, expects you to know all of that but i mean you have the the validation of coal mine records ubiquity records daptone records it's not just a fad it's it's authentic and it's true and it's it's good music and it resonates when it comes to monophonics we've always tried to lean another way because as much as we love soul you know we we're it's so eclectic all the music we listen to that like we try and let that come to the music with a lot of focus though we don't try and paint a blurry picture and go no figure it out <laughs> like because we like a lot of music it's like no it all needs to like live in a place together and you can find a way to put those influences in your music without completely making random songs i mean that's something that bands do too often i think it's like yeah we like this song we want to we love reggae it's like no no no, man don't be making no random reggae. like you know it's always that one random reggae song on your record it's like you can express your love for reggae in a different way than you being a band with all this focus and then all of a sudden it's like well stevie wonder did you know um we'll be jamming until the break and it's just like that's stevie wonder man <laughs> and that was after years of making records and really 
like coming into his own as an artist. So it's like, if he wants to all of a sudden do that, good for him. Like, but you ain't that. So like, you need to like figure out your identity first, because I think there's just, and it's something I talk to with a lot, a lot of bands and young bands, which is like, you need to figure out who you are and what you want to say, because having a song that sounds like this and then like that. And then like this, because you like all these bands or this music is like, you're painting a very blurry picture and it's, it's hard to like grasp on, you know, there's no meat. It's like all this fancy shit. And then there's nothing to really like take a bite out of and go, Oh, okay. This is who this band is. And like, that's been our big thing with monophonics is like, yes, we love soul music. Yes. We love rock music. Yes. We love psychedelic music. And it's like the three of those marry really well. Yeah. I mean, you have your debut LP, the tales people tell you got the instrumental coming out for record store day in June monophonics that you produced string of 45s let me give you the floor to tell the good people what they can look forward to you can definitely expect uh i called you back baby with impressions of you on the b-side of that's going to be on 45 coming out in spring summer like you said the instrumental record um i'm currently working on another record with terry that'll probably come out at the end of this year i feel good about keeping my word on that so you can expect another record later this year from me and terry that's a special project can't talk about it too much yet, but you can expect more music. And I've got some more singles that I want to put out with Terry. I've got some other things I've written with my friends, the Ramey brothers, who um, are a big part of my record. And Max is also a part of Monophonics. And um, I'm working with some other artists, uh, a great artist and band from Nashville called Alana Royale. And another band from California, uh, just some other things. I'm I'm constantly working with people. Um, I'll probably appear on at least a few songs, a couple songs with Oregon for some projects they're working on. They're about to release a lot of music. So there's no shortage. The good news is there's a lot of people in this world. And if you're making something honest and true and it's quality, you, you, you can do it. There's people out there. There's an audience. You can make a living and do this. I'm not telling you you'll be rich or famous, but if that's what you want to do, then I think you better think about what you really want. Being rich and famous is way harder than you think. <laughs> yeah. If you want to be rich and famous, start a podcast, obviously. Duh. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I want to contribute to your legacy. I'm going to use this podcast to get DJ Premier on, and then I'm going to convince him to remix one of your records. I'm going to do it. Oh, dude. When people ask me, who are your early influences? And I always say DJ Premier. He is like I said, he's one of the, just like a lot of people have their artists. He's one of those reasons why I fell in love with music. So I, I owe him a great deal of, you know, just thank yous and gratitude, but uh, that would be a dream come true. Easily one of my greatest achievements if I got DJ Premier to, but he always takes some sort of catalog and just chops that up for the rhyme thing. I think he should take coal mine. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to do what I can. <laughs> Please do. All right. Well, Kelly, it's it's been a pleasure, man. I'm gonna and I'm gonna let you know. I'm gonna be in line on Record Store Day. You're at the top of my queue. Uh, thank but you, man. In the, no problem, man. In the meantime, you know, wash your hands, be safe. Of course, man. Good vibes. Much respect to you, man. You did your homework, and I I appreciate going into something like this. I'm like, oh, oh, this is, okay. This guy knows a few th- more things than just <laughs> just some songs. So I appreciate you doing your homework. It, it makes for a fun interview. <laughs>